0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Canada and the U.S. are happy again that tariffs have been lifted. What's happening with Huawei and Google, and how does it affect you? And two kids were rescued on Monday from Burke Mountain in Coquitlam, B.C. Should they have been there in the first place? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: Today on The Scott Thompson Show on 900-CHML.
0: All right, we talked about this on, uh, on Friday. It was uh, amazing. We were waiting and waiting and waiting for the uh, press conference here in Hamilton. Uh, from the prime minister telling us that uh, tariffs had uh, had finally been lifted, and then that was pretty much it. That's uh, that's all the story wrote. And then uh, over the weekend, I guess the retaliatory tariffs that uh, we had put in place uh, were dropped as well. So what happens now, moving forward? What does this mean? Is life different for Canadians, Americans, what have you? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated.
2: My pleasure, Scott.
0: So there was so much chatter about this. It seemed odd to me at first that uh, that uh, Donald Trump would, would be hammering away at, at NAPTA saying, this deal is terrible, we need a new one, we need a new one, and then once uh the grueling negotiations are over then he puts tariffs in place in order to which, which so sort of keeps the whole thing from being signed or ratified anyway mm-hmm. uh now it appears that that all has all been dropped so what is the relation uh, relationship between the two countries moving forward how does this change things what now
2: well i, I do think it's going to change things somewhat i mean the uh, the most uh flagrant irritants have been removed for now so that's good news. Uh, I'm not saying that we <laughs> were pleased or that anyone in Canada was pleased about that. But, I mean, it, it, it's going to allow the possibility for a better relationship to emerge. And um, and so that that's a good thing. I think Trump, very quickly, I think that Trump did this uh, not out of altruism or out of any concern for Canada. I think he had um, some uh... strategic considerations motivations uh the first and foremost was that he was f- fighting a two front war, one with China and then another with the allies like Canada and Mexico and europe and He realized like Napoleon did two hundred years ago, and every general has since that fighting a war on two separate fronts is not a good thing, and uh because you have less and less allies and you're spread you know you're you know over you're, you're fighting it on on multiple fronts, using up lots of resources. And he needed allies in his confrontation with China. So I think that that was one reason he wanted to get, the, uh, get this over with. And he wanted Canada on board because Canada has credibility internationally, and we weren't going to be on board helping him with China when he was, you know, doing this to us. Why put so
0: much emphasis, and we all remember during the campaign about how NAFTA wasn't wasn't working, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Why put so much emphasis on that and then put tariffs in place, which obviously a, a trade deal is supposed to, right, you know, right. remove tariffs. And, and, and was there any advantage to him putting them on or even keeping them on till this point?
2: Uh, let me go in reverse order. I mean, I, I I've long argued that tariffs, uh, and others have long argued, uh, trade debt people, of our economists have argued that the tariffs are really a bad idea because they fall on your own people. Uh, it's your own people that pay the tariff. When you impose tariffs, when the prime minister can imposes tariffs, it's being imposed on Canadians, not on Americans. When Trump imposes tariffs, he's imposing it on Americans. But I I think he did it because he thought he was getting a lot of political benefits. And uh, he was elected, of course, in 2016 because there was a sense that the other people in Washington, uh, all the other Republican potential candidates who lost, as well as the Democratic leadership, were out of touch. They were not looking after the regular working folks out in the in the Rust Belt, and so uh, people switched. and And I think Trump realizes unfortunately that you know he gets a lot of publicity when he announces these tariffs he gets tons of publicity and that allows him to say hey i'm standing up for you i'm working for you i'm out there on your behalf and so trump I think did it for that reason. It was the political calculation that he was being seen in large parts of the United States as standing up for workers who were being, um, you know, taken to the cleaners, is what he Could thought. have all of this
0: been done without the tariffs being put in place, or is is this, as you say, grandstanding, let's, you know, bring everything to a grinding halt, let's put tariffs in place and, and then once I'm happy, we'll you know remove all of the barriers
2: and, and life will get back to normal. Had
0: he had dropped these when the deal was was signed way back when. Would it have mattered?
2: Uh, I don't. I think it would have been. I don't think he should have gone down that road in the first place. I'm talking Canada and the United and Canada and Mexico. Let, let's leave China out because that's a very, very, yeah. very different yeah. kettle of fish. Canada is not China i mean by that the chinese are cheating we're not and so forth uh, i think he didn't have to go down this road uh... i think it would have led to a more quick uh... rapid ratification of nafta and that's his second motivation by the way i said he's got two motivations for dropping these tariffs and the second one is that nancy pelosi has bottled up the nafta the new nafta bill in a congressional committee and she and actually republicans have said they're not going to vote on it until he got rid of the tariffs against canada and mexico so he wants to be able to go on the campaign trail now, this fall, next winter, next spring, next summer, because he's up for re-election in, in the fall of 2020. And he wanted to brag that he had solved and, uh, uh, the, the what he kept calling the worst trade deal ever. That was the old NAFTA. And he wanted to say, hey, I've got a new NAFTA that's shiny and it's beautiful and it's better. And way better than the old NAFTA. But to do that, it has to be approved, and he has to get it out of committee and get voted on. And they were blocking him because of the tariffs. So this was the key, the getting rid of the tariffs was the key in Washington for him to be able to get that bill through the Congress so that then he really can brag.
0: Because there, no there was no way the this was going to get ratified with tariffs in place anyway. I mean, he must have known that.
2: Um I I don't yeah, I am agreeing I I don't know what went through his head I yeah, guess that's yeah. why I'm hesitating no, no. I think he was so enamored I I read the interview where he was talking about I'm the tariff king and I was saying like what's going through this guy's head okay. Yeah. And uh, he's really become enamored. I mean, he, it's really its his best friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, he likes, I think, because there's no uh, you know, economic argument for them. So I he think... puts
0: them in place, basically, and then takes credit for removing them.
2: Exactly. You win, yeah. you win twice. Yeah. First you win for standing up and defending the American workers, and then you get credit for taking off the stupid things in the, that you put there in the first place. Yeah, so yeah. He, from his point of view, hey, I'm winning twice. This is win-win for Donald Trump. So how
0: is the Rust Belt viewing this? How, you know, I mean, is everybody buying into this? Is everybody thinking, yeah, this is great. Way to go.
2: I've, I've been drilling down in my research because I'm just fascinated by this whole subject, you know, economic growth and, and tariffs and Trump and so forth. And I have visited the Rust Belt. I've been to the Rust Belt on, uh, road, on road trips. And uh, I'm talking rural Pennsylvania, New York State, um, Ohio, and so forth. And, uh, and I was trying to get a sense, you know, are they still supporting him? I think it's it's a little bit more split. He's lost some support, but some of the accounts I'm reading says that they're still hanging in there with him because they see him as the only one who's willing to stand up to the Chinese. And and I think that he's, I'm guessing he's got internal polls showing that the tariffs on Canada and Mexico are of declining political benefit to him, whereas I, I think that the, the sense of the Chinese being the, you know, the mortal enemy of the of the United States is very strongly held in the states, and so I think he's decided to focus and go the whole nine yards against the, uh, you know, the big enchilada. And I mean by that, uh, China is the big, big bad wolf that is cheating and uh, stealing jobs and so forth. So it's harder to make that argument against Canada and Mexico because, first off, we're very small countries compared to the states, whereas China is very large and growing much more quickly. So I think this is part of his strategic. Comple- uh, he's decided to completely focus for the next 12 months, 18 months, on China uh, as his key to getting reelected in the fall of 2020.
0: Does this uh, finally ratifying NAFTA and, and dropping these tariffs, which will lead to ratifying NAFTA, does that change any negotiations? You said it's a total, separ- totally separate kettle of fish with the, the, the China negotiations over the uh, NAFTA deal. But that being said, now that NAFTA appears to be put to bed or will be soon, how does that reflect uh, on the China negotiations, or does it, other than it just gives him a Well, I don't focus. think it
2: has any direct impact in the sense that, I mean, that yeah. it, it's been negotiated. His team that negotiated NAFTA, Lighthizer and company, are, are actually doing the China negotiations. Um, so I don't think it'll have any impact there. I mean, if anything, it's in the court of public opinion. You know, as I said, he can declare victory on his campaign speeches when he's out on the hustings, you know, giving uh, shouting at the, at the podium. You know, he can say, uh, you know, I've all solved the Mexico problem. I've solved the problem we had with canada and now i'm going to focus on on china and 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 as i said i think that that makes sense because there's a far greater i mean i read american media all the time and there's a far greater fear or concern uh about china than there is i mean canada i don't think there ever was a real fear other than maybe in donald trump's head and a few american farmers but most People didn't ever feel that or sense that, that Canada was a big problem. Mexico, a little bit more so because the wages are so much lower in Mexico than Canada. But but I think he is doing this because his political antenna or his polls or both are telling him there's far more uh, benefit for him to be taking on China. And that's why he, there's so much bluster and so many threats and, and, and new tariffs. Being imposed on the Chinese because he's decided it's going to be his whipping boy, his uh, public enemy number one, in his tweets and in his campaign speeches. Um, what What about
3: uh,
0: foreign steel coming in through Canada into the United States? This one thing that did come out of this was yeah. it forced Canada to tighten its borders and and police that more effectively. Is that accurate?
2: uh that's i've heard that and read that multiple times uh, i haven't seen anyone uh put forward any credible argument or even not credible argument rejecting it so therefore i consider it to be accurate uh, because you know one of the tests of accuracy is anybody shooting it down that theory and nobody is so uh, it points to a potential risk for us we're going we canada um with trump is that we have to make sure that we really are not allowing chinese uh, steel that is being dumped uh, to be dumped into Canada, to be re-exported to the States, because Char- Trump would use that in a nanosecond to reimpose tariffs on us. And uh, But then, uh, you know, Scott, we shouldn't be allowing dump steel in anyways. Yeah. Dumping is illegal under the WTO, and dumping is, is very clear, has a very clear definition. You're selling it below the cost it took for you to make it. And the Chinese have been held by the European Trade Commission. This isn't politicians. These are economists and statisticians and people that crunch huge amounts of numbers. They found that the Chinese were dumping selling below the cost of their production. And the American Trade Tribunal found the same thing. So it's not as if there isn't a record out there validating and demonstrating and proving that the Chinese were doing this. So, uh, you know, why do we want to bring dumped steel into Canada, given that the steel industry has problems of its own in Canada? That's the last thing we want.
0: Uh, speaking of China, and, uh, what are your thoughts? Can't let you go without asking your thoughts on Huawei, Google Now, a part of this discussion, uh, Place restrictions on Huawei in yeah. order to comply with U.S. Uh, regulations. Where's this going?
2: This is fascinating, and uh, this is being debated, I assure you, in Ottawa amongst people I know. And, uh, and there's two very intelligent, thoughtful schools of thought that have come to the exact opposite conclusion. Uh, that we are not going to ban Huawei, and the other school of thought says, yes, we are. I'm of the second school. Uh, I think that uh, we're probably going to ban Huawei. or not. I won't sit in the fence. I think we're going to ban Huawei, um, primarily because the United States is banning Huawei. And we are so integrated in so many dimensions, into the U.S. economy and, of course, into the U.S. military structure, I mean, my late father was a, uh, served in the Canadian forces as a pilot, and he trained in the States frequently. And of course, we, uh, we share in NORAD and NATO, and, and I just, I can't see us, given the military threats that have been raised, the, yeah. the, the national security threats. This isn't about competition. This is about, quote, national security, end quote. And that typically trumps everything. And so I think that at the end of the day that Mr. Trudeau is going to have to ban Huawei, not because even though Bell, and I realize Bell is saying this is going to drive up the cost of consumers, You know, sometimes there are things you just have to do, you know, like, um, you know, through the NORAD treaty or the NATO treaty, we do things that we don't always want to because we're part of a military alliance and partnership with the U.S. And I can't see how we can have a phone system that operates and interoperates with the American phone system if we're using bits and pieces from a banned company Hmm. that the Americans don't allow. That would give them an opening to start, I don't know, intercepting traffic or something from Canadian telecom.
0: Ian Lee has been with us, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated.
1: My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Google placed restrictions
0: on Huawei in order to comply with U.S. uh, regulations and then reversed that decision. What exactly happened? Uh, Let's bring in Matt Novak. He's with Gizmodo, a tech blog, and is on the line with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Matt, uh, explain in layman's terms what happened here. Uh, It seems that Google reacted and then uh, changed that. What exactly did happen here?
3: Well, it has less to do with what Google wanted and more uh, to do with what the Trump regime did. Um, Basically, the license was pulled for um, uh, Google's ability to um, push out apps on Huawei phones. So uh, after... Last week, President Trump signed an executive order uh, that targeted Huawei, without mentioning it by name, um, over national security concerns, which set off this sort of ripple effect where U.S. Commerce Department decided that um, it would specifically target Huawei uh, over these supposed national security concerns, which means that Google couldn't do business with Huawei anymore. Um, And also a lot of other companies, for that matter, Intel, Broadcom, um, and then... What happened? This is really a story that's changing by the day. Um, But the latest is that uh, Huawei phones um, are going to be covered for the next 90 days. Basically, what the Commerce Department decided was that, in order for uh, users of Huawei phones to be able to uh, download software and download updates, um, there wouldn't be this sort of hard uh, deadline where they Google immediately had to stop cooperating with Huawei. They're giving them a 90-day period, um, which will allow Google to push updates. But after that, theoretically, on August 19th, um, after the 90 days period is up, Huawei phones that are sold, uh, at least in the US and Canada, will no longer have support from Google, uh, which means that you won't be able to download anything from their Android, uh, any Android apps from their store. now Huawei is working on trying to uh, get their own apps out there. They're working on trying to work on their own operating system, for that matter. Um, but where those are at and how that transition might happen uh, is definitely up in the air. Like I said, this is sort of a day by day thing. And just before I got on the air with you, Bloomberg just reported that um, this was going to happen a lot sooner. Actually, the the executive order was going to come down against Huawei. Uh, much sooner, but um, the Trump, reg- Trump regime decided to hold off until trade negotiations sort of broke down.
0: So what does this do for Huawei phones? I mean, does this render them useless after 90 days?
3: Nope. Uh, it will just mean that you won't be able to download. Uh, existing users should be fine. Um, it's sort of more the long-term security issue. Um, you'll, you'll Anyone with a phone right now is kind of grandfathered in. Um, and we'll be able to, uh, you know, work with what they've got. Any new phone sold won't be able to use the Android software um, that that Google puts out. Now, Android software is open source, so theoretically Huawei can start using an open source version, but that isn't, uh, those tend to get pushed out a lot later than the official Android, um, and it's not something that uh, Huawei would wanna use long term.
0: So what will this do if you're a consumer and you've got a Huawei phone, what does this mean? And if you're a future consumer, are you going to look to Huawei if there's this all this indecision?
3: Yeah, I mean, basically the suggestions now coming from a number of angles and everyone's gotta make a choice for themselves, but um, is for any Huawei, anyone looking at buying a new Huawei phone um, to just not do that. <laughs> it's uh, it's not going to be supported and as secure in the same way that um, it would be if if this passes. And and you know this is sort of the the big open question is you know it, according to the Commerce Department's own press release you know they they have hinted that another extension could come after August after the ninety day. Uh, Grace period. Well, it sounds
0: like although they're trying to kill them, they're trying to keep them alive. They keep throwing them lifelines, right? right? Like, okay, that's it. No more. And again, I thought this was all more in in regard to the five G network rather than the operation of the day to day operation of their phone systems.
3: And that's really what it's all about. You know, we sort of have to step back and look at this through the prism of the new Cold War. This is just one small battle. Um, and I think that when you pull back, you start to see, um, you know, and, and the trade war itself between uh, Trump and, and China is its own battle. Um, and, and as you said, 5G is obviously, I think, really the target in this, because when you look at the numbers, you know, the U.S., I think Huawei's got like 1% market share in the U.S., maybe 3% in Canada. And I think that when you look at the real big picture, it is about 5G, um, and and the implementation of that next yeah. uh, big infrastructure technology, um, but yeah, I mean they're they're trying to they're trying to smother smother the competition, and we're seeing this. You know, a lot of people are seeing this as a new sort of digital. Um, the I've seen it <laughs> called the digital uh, iron wall, or the. Mm. Uh, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's the iron firewall, a digital wall
0: you know, almost. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so obviously this is, this is your wheelhouse. Um, what are your thoughts on the concerns over uh, security and using Huawei, especially as we see a Huawei executive being held in, in Vancouver and, and enjoying her mansion while there's two Canadians detained in certainly less than humane-like conditions. Uh, should we be concerned about security? And you really can't separate one from the other.
3: Yeah, I mean, my personal opinion is that it is only a macro concern, really. Um, we haven't found credible evidence that there are any true backdoors in wellway technology. And that's sort of what what kind of make But what about
0: you is- know, I, many have said that and I and sorry for interrupting but many tech people say there's no and Huawei has said there is no proof that this has happened there is no and I don't think anybody's arguing that what people are arguing is if they th- flip a switch the capability is there and let's be honest: the Chinese government controls every con- company within those walls. So again, although nothing's been found, I don't think that's what people are concerned about. People are concerned about: sure. is this business operated separately, or is it ruled by the government, uh, the Communist Party of China? So, um, sure. It, and, at the end of the know, day, you, how do we how, how, how do we how do we balance all that?
3: Sure, and I'm totally you know I I for one think that. Um, there's, you know, reason to be concerned about the 5G stuff. You know, I, I was responding to your question sort of on the consumer level. Is there a reason to worry on the consumer level about your personal security? About your own phone, yeah. Huawei phone yeah. today? Yeah. No, not necessarily. That's right. my that's my point about that. Right. Uh, pulling back again to the sort of new Cold War perspective? Absolutely. I mean, the reason that this this started in Australia, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Australia, you know, Australian intelligence service was playing their, you know, digital war games, you know, gaming out different scenarios. They saw that, you know, if they they wanted to play out a game where it was how do we attack uh, adversary infrastructure, telecommunications, um, they played it out and realized that uh, they could totally flip everyone's switches in China and totally spy on everyone and really incapacitate, um, infra- you know, communications infrastructure in China. Uh, The Australians quickly realized, oh, they can do that to us and shut it down so that Australia was actually the first country to ban 5G development by Huawei in their country. Mm -hmm. Um, And they whispered through the Five Eyes network that, hey, America, you should look at this. Trump didn't actually take it very seriously at first, um, but seems to be taking it seriously now because it serves his agenda. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's obviously... My personal opinion, from the from the global perspective, I totally get it. Um, Why you'd want to why you'd want to control your uh, communications infrastructure from a national security standpoint, um, especially as it comes down to you know the the balkanization of the internet, and this really, again, you know, pulling out from from the thirty thousand foot view, um, you know, the balkanization of the internet is is something that we understand is like the you know great firewall of China. Uh, they're not able to get certain censored information about stuff like Tiananmen Square and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think you're going to see that on our side as well, as it were, quote unquote, our side yeah. in the West, as we sort of see, um, you know, the blocking of various information. And there's I, I, we're really moving towards, uh, you know, the old school Cold War days of Information not being able to pass through mm. certain, uh, certain channels. So how do you
0: how does the United States deal with the Huawei? Do they let them in and you know have have a phone, have have certain consumer products uh in America but not allow them to be part of the 5G infrastructure or do they have to completely ban this this company from or, or any Chinese companies from technology like this?
3: Well, you know, it, it really depends on what you're protecting against. I think if you're protecting against a Cold War turning into a potential hot war, of course, you don't want any, um, you know, near peer adversary controlling your infrastructure. You don't want, uh, um, you know, you wouldn't want uh, China to be building other parts of infrastructure that you depend on for moving tanks around your country in the you know, World War II scenario. Um, but, you know, we're not there yet, obviously. That's, so it's, it's really about gaming sort of – and this is what the Australians did. It's about gaming what the possibilities are and what risks you're willing to take. Now, the problem for the West is that Huawei has been very competitive price-wise
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, when it comes to building infrastructure. And that's well,
0: we're seeing that with pretty much everything coming out of China, right? There's the attraction. Yeah, <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> right. And that's sort of the problem at the end of the day when it comes to – especially as you see um, – Sort of the proxy wars in, say, Africa, where um, you know the Chinese are building not just telecommunications projects but all kinds of infrastructure projects, um, and that you know the, it's they're they're offering the best price. So convincing um, an allied nation that even in Europe that uh, maybe you don't want to be working with Huawei is a tough tough mm-hmm. sell because it's a great price. And and Australia, you know, to its credit, really. You know they they have some of the worst internet infrastructure in the developed world, um, so to shut out a low cost competitor like that was is probably going to ding their economy quite a bit.
0: So, at what point does Huawei say this is not worth it, or do they, do they just keep hammering away at this?
3: Um, that's a good question, and honestly, things are changing so quickly that I'm not sure. I think you know from the from the perspective of their smartphone market again. It's tiny in North America.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think they're, they're, they've got their eye on the ball when it comes to 5G, but, and the U.S. hasn't officially banned them from um, you know, that, but that's obviously next on the list for an official ban on development of 5G networks. Well,
0: it, how long so, can we be from that decision if, if these sorts of decisions are being made? And as you said, 90 days extension at a time, how long can you keep doing that?
3: Yeah. No, I, I think it's, you know, inevitable at this point. I mean, this this really was, I think the history books are going to look back on this uh, month as sort of the official start of the new Cold War. Where this is, you know, the new Cold War is we, we've been living in it for a few years now, even before Trump came to office. Um, I would argue that, you know, the new Cold War was in full swing back uh, in 2015. But I think that, you, you know, this is really going to be kickstarting a, a true balkanization of, communications infrastructure around the world. Um, and I think that, you know, it's it's always well, going to get shut out. And we're going to see, you know, people, you know, countries caught in the middle, such as Canada, um, who, quite frankly, are getting rolled by the Trump regime, because Trump is using, you know, playing politics and using um, everything as a pawn in his game to potentially you know float the idea of swapping quote-unquote prisoners in in yeah. you know uh that that sort so of mentality do you think, is not good for for allies
0: so do you think 5g is a much like the cfo of huawei is a bargaining chip here unofficially or uh is this no it's a security issue it's got nothing to do with the trade the trade deals are totally separate
3: I think fundamentally it's a security issue. I think that Trump will try to use it as a bargaining chip. I think that, you know, he will... What's to stop China?
0: What's to stop China from saying, hey, you know what, you don't take uh, the 5G network, you're not getting any of the other stuff that comes cheap from this country, uh, you know, that fills our houses.
3: Yep, I've seen that floated. Um, I've seen that possibility floated, especially when it comes to um, electronics. You know, China has not retaliated with, um, uh, by imposing any sort of, Tariffs on uh, the export of of things like the iPhone, which obviously the the supply chains and the the, you know the U.S. depends extremely on uh, on China for production of goods. That will hurt their own economy. And I guess what you have to to wager is that China is China going to play a long game or are they going to play the shorter game? They're playing the long game. They might sacrifice uh, the iPhone. They might say, you know, look, this creates. Thousands of jobs for Foxconn in China, you know, this creates thousands of jobs for us. uh, But long term, we want to be, um, you know, completely independent of the the U.S. economy. Uh, You know, they're going to stick it out. The the, the tricky thing for the United States is that Trump is obviously just completely reactive and doesn't have a long term vision for anything. Um, So it'll be interesting to see. You know, I think there's huge bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress to keep Huawei away from critical technology infrastructure. Um, But whether Trump sort of (laughs) trades that away for something else is entirely possible. And that unpredictability is going to come back to bite us in the butt, I would say.
0: Obviously made a decision here in regard to, you know, restricting what Huawei can do. Uh, Therefore, American companies are reacting to this. Will they just keep throwing them little ninety-day extensions to keep American companies happy? Happy that are supplying them, or, or uh, you know, again, wh- when does this get replaced by a bigger solution?
3: Uh, it's a good question. I think that um, you know, I would guess that they're not going to give them another extension just because it's sort of like, what's the point? I think. But what that sends a message to probably... Huawei,
0: doesn't that send a message to Huawei? You know what? We really don't want your business.
3: For sure. And I think that they don't want their business. And I think that, um, you know, it's it's what's interesting to me is, you know, uh, Huawei's head of the European region uh, this morning gave a speech where he was talking about cooperating with Google to try and get, uh, you know, he was basically hinting at the idea that China was the Chinese government was working with Google to try and fix uh, to fix their business problem, which Is very interesting um, if if that's really how things go because Google wants uh, a a bite of the China pie in the sense that you know they they've been developing a a censored search engine um, that's been highly controversial within the company uh, that hasn't been launched and um, I think that Google is salivating over the Chinese market and it would be interesting to see what kind of lobbying efforts are going to emerge from this from private American tech company.
1: Hmm.
0: All right, Matt Novak has been with us from Gizmodo. His latest article there, Google to provide Huawei software and security updates for 90 days, reversing earlier decision. Matt, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: All right, good news. Two young children were rescued Monday after spending uh, the night alone on Burke Mountain in Coquitlam, British Columbia. Uh, The drama began late Sunday afternoon when a boy and girl age six and seven were heading down a trail with their father. All three unfortunately ended up falling down a steep treacherous cliff. The father was able to make the difficult climb up the cliff while injured to get a help and made the difficult decision to leave the two kids on a plateau feeling that it was too dangerous for the kids to follow him. My goodness, what uh, an incredible story. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Ted Hadington. Uh, He is a disaster management instructor, Ryerson University, senior team leader for the Canadian Red Cross Emergency Response Group, and is with us now. Ted, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Okay. good afternoon,
4: Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh,
0: Your thoughts when you first heard of this story. My first reaction was, how could you leave your kids?
4: Got as a search and rescue responder uh, in the last five years. Unfortunately, these are stories I hear almost every day. Mm-hmm. In the last three or four days, we've had the same situation with a family in Algonquin Park. We've got the British Columbia. I think we've got ice fishing people. We've got Zodiacs being lost at to sea in Georgian Bay. We've got people falling over the Niagara Gorge and the uh, you know on the uh, yeah. Grand Canyon as well. So these are daily occurrences. Over a hundred calls come in every year across Canada for search and rescue in the national park system.
0: Yeah, I guess we just don't realize how often, unfortunately, this does happen. Um, but what is the biggest challenge? Why Why does this? Is this just inexperience? Why, and again, we don't not necessarily with this specific case, but why do, why do you see these numbers?
4: Well, so far, all of these stories I just mentioned, all of them have turned out, fortunately, in good health for everybody and for the rescuers and the responders that went after them. But a lot of it is just common sense and, and a lack of training, mostly common sense that people go too far deep into the backwoods uh... they fail to give a plan to either the uh... the campground uh... officers or rangers or they if, if they should be filing a flight plan with their family saying i'm gone one and a half days i'm taking this route and i'll be back at this time and if not uh, wait three hours and I'll uh... and send out a search and rescue team uh, a lot of people, a lot of people love to go and, and uh, go camping and they just go too far they uh, you know they plan for a day but they don't pack for a week of survival they have a mm-hmm. backpack that's good for 3 hours but not for a couple of days of survival
0: wow that's a good point there uh you know you think you're only going to be out for a day you only pack that and you never know if you do run into trouble um uh we'll get some advice when we end off all of this uh interview getting back to this situation um Again, how do you make that decision to leave the kids? I just read the story again, and, and basically the, the three of them, six- and seven-year-old, and then the, the father had slipped or fallen down a uh, an embankment of some sort. He got his way up, but I guess uh, felt that it was not safe for the kids to do that.
4: It's a tough call. I'm a father of three, and I'd, I'd be scratching my head and flipping a coin which way I'd go as well. But yeah. my training, Mitch tells me, and I would tell campers, and I'd tell your, your, your listening audience, that there's the 3S rule, which is stay, shelter, signal, which is stay in place. People will find you. Uh, make your shelter while it's daylight, while you're warm, before you get hypothermia, and you'll find ways to signal, whether it's a whistle, a light something shiny, but people will find you if, you if you stay, shelter in place, and signal. People will come to you, maybe 24 hours, but if he'd fallen and hurt himself more before he was rescued or didn't get a cell signal right. and he came to lower ground, yeah. uh, he would have died and perished or had hypothermia and gone unconscious, and the children either would have been, they could have been um, consumed by a bear, they could have had hypothermia themselves, or they could have been attacked by a cougar in the woods up there in B.C.,
0: Wow. Um, you know, you, you, again, it sounds like common sense but um, uh, obviously this father decided to leave. Why is it best to just stay put?
4: You have less risk and you have less exposure to, to all those other risks if you stay in place and shelter in place. The minute you separate people, you, the, the first responders have twice as much work to do, the person who left and the people he left behind. Also, when you start walking, especially if you have an injury, especially if the day is getting close to ending, you get other risks of nighttime, of of predators. You uh, risk falling down and hurting yourself, knocking your head, uh, being unconscious. So then you're out of play as a rescuer, and then the kids are left there not knowing what to do either. So you just you increase the risk of hurt, of, of, of death.
1: Uh,
0: And, you know, I guess if you don't know where you are, the uh, immediate reaction is to start looking. But does that make things more complicated for rescuers the more you move around?
4: Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And although a number of people have learned through their camping and through training and, and guidebooks and so on to leave a bit of a trail, which was true in this case, I take a piece of fluorescent orange tape when I go deep yeah. into the woods alone or with walking the dog or with friends. Uh, I try to leave a trail every 500 yards, 1,000 yards or something, so at least they know roughly, you know, what we call a 10 by 10, sort of a yeah. you know, 10 miles by 10 miles. They know roughly a grid where I'm in, so that makes the, the search take place in maybe 30 minutes as opposed to 30 hours. And that can mean the difference between surviving and not.
0: Uh, In this case, with taking uh, these kids, uh, their age, I guess, six and seven, is there something about taking kids this young on such a journey?
4: Well, you know what, when, I, when I'm teaching preparedness, it's not so much the age, it's the maturity of their outdoor skills. Yeah. You know, there, there are lots of kids that are teenagers at 14 that wouldn't have a clue what to do. And if these kids have camped with their dad before and gone hiking, and they're five and six, they might be quite prepared know how to make a shelter, sure. maybe even start a fire. They know where the matches are in his backpack. So uh- it's based on training, not age.
0: So what advice do you have for people that are, you know, uh, beyond the weekend warrior? They're not going to the provincial park with a designated campsite. They're going out into the backcountry. What, what advice do you have for them? Well, the,
4: the further they go, the longer they go, I'm hoping... And praying for them that they have better training and, and better skill sets and are more responsible. But at minimum, like I say, you, you, you pack for a day, but you've got to plan for a week because we're not always in control of Mother Nature or predators or animals that may come, or falling off a cliff or a rock comes loose off a, a fall or something. But at minimum, you know, you should have, you don't need food for a week. You can survive for seven to ten days without food, but you should have enough water for a couple of days, a first aid kit, obviously, and some training on how to use it in case, if he broke his leg, how to splint so he could keep walking. Right. Uh, you should have a, a, a warmth blanket, some kind of poncho, which the kids did have, so that was smart that he wrapped them in those warm blankets. Um, I take flares, and I, I, some people take an ELT, which is an emergency locator transmitter. Uh, some people, if they go deep into the woods, take a sat phone, but that's getting into a different price structure. But m- most importantly, have a plan. Map out where you're going to go. Let somebody know, whether it's the authorities or family or friends, or leave a note on someone's front door. Basically have a a plan Mm -hmm. sponsor, like filing a flight plan, like an aircraft. Um, I always take along a water purifier, what they call a purifier straw, Mm-hmm. Not everybody can carry 10 liters of water on their back. To, you know, you need like a couple liters a day to drink and one to wash. But you can always suck through the, the straw out of a lake, even if it, it's polluted in the spring or whatever, right right. Now, or it's muck. At least you can get your water each day. So that's important, is surviving with water and warmth and shelter.
0: So, Ted, you've uh, obviously uh, brought to our attention how often this does happen. Um, what do you do with these people once you get them out safely and hopefully everything's okay? Did you... Are charges warranted here? How do, you, how do you handle that? How do you balance this?
4: No, so, someone who has lost, someone who's hurt themselves, someone who is scared has not broken the law, has not broken a bylaw. Yeah. Even if they break into the park late at night uh, when the season's not on or something, they're not going to be charged, or it's unlikely it would be unfair if they were. What, what becomes unfair are the costs involved, mm. which most people never have to reach into their pocket to pay for. But if you think to get a... The OPP got a, a call. They called Trenton. They dispatched a helicopter. That's $1,600 an hour just for gas. Mm. There's a liftoff cost of about five grand. There's mileage. There's a haul-out. There's an evacuation. You've got a crew of four to six people. Then you uh, d- dispatch the EMS, the paramedics, and they've got to drive in along Highway 60 to Algonquin Park, in this case, or they've got to drive three or four hours up a B.C. Mountain Road. Then they've got to transport in the hospital. You know, the total cost, roughly. Yeah and that rescue would be about $25,000. Wow. Now, the salaries of EMS and first responders and the military crew and the, you know, Griffin helicopter, their own salary, right? Their pensions, yep. they're already being paid by our taxes and they do a great job at that.
0: Ted Haddington is gas
4: additional costs.
0: Yeah, it, Ted Haddington has been with us disaster management instructor Ryerson University senior team lead for the Canadian Red Cross Emergency Response Group talking about two kids uh, and their father rescued uh, from Burke Mountain, Coquitlam, British Columbia, after uh, getting lost and falling down a ravine. Ted, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
4: Thanks, Scott. And just remember, everybody, hope is not a survival
0: plan. <laughs> Good, great advice. Thank you, Ted.
1: You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: I do the financial show with uh, Don and Andy all the time. and um, From IG Private Wealth Management, we're always talking about wills and, you know... Um, How important it is to have a will, especially if you've got dependents and kids and blah, 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 blah. Uh, And and what amazes me to no end is people who uh, have very complicated estates and lots and lots of money who still don't have wills. We saw this with Prince uh, passed away and a huge, huge estate and no will. How complicated is that? Uh, Again, Aretha Franklin passed away and uh, 76 Last August, pancreatic cancer, they said she had no will. Then later, after searching the home and etc., they found three handwritten wills, including one under the cushions of her couch. Are they valid? Which one is? How do you pick which one is valid? Uh, Let's bring in Lachlan J. Campbell. Campbell Bader, LLP, and is with us now. Uh, Lachlan, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So uh, three handwritten wills, are they valid? Which one is?
5: (laughs) Well, obviously, I couldn't say without seeing them, but normally, in the normal course, um, a handwritten will is actually more likely to be valid than than a will from a kit you would get off the Internet or something. And uh, there are obviously some variables, like you, you do have to defend the will and show that she was in her right mind and not being influenced. But otherwise, it's pretty simple. The one with the last date on it
0: is valid. So the one that is the latest edition of, would, the most recent, would be the one that's valid. Would that supersede anything on the other two then automatically?
5: Well, that's where you get into all kinds of gray areas, which is not to show for lawyers, because in fact, uh, lawyers would prefer that, uh, a lot of lawyers would prefer you didn't hire lawyers to do your will, because litigating the estate is uh, going to be much more lucrative. But uh, it's, not much, it's certainly better for the client to, to have it done in the first place. Uh, no, it's not clear one hundred percent you know if one will deals with an asset and the subsequent will is completely silent about it. Right. You know, is there a clear intent to not deal with that asset? Do we incorporate the other will? Those are the kinds of things that just don't happen if you're organized. But someone with three wills uh, already broke the first will, the first rule, which is always destroy the old.
0: Ah, uh, so the fact that these were hand uh, written wills, that that holds no bearing. that's still that's still valid.
5: And you know what? It's easier to get a handwritten will right, and you're going to get more leeway in having it honored by a court than one of the will kits that you get from the internet that sort of fill in the blanks. Why is that? And, uh, you know what? It's honestly, it's because our estates and trust law is the least updated. Most archaic area of law that there is, Mm. I would say that that it's not got into the uh, 21st century yet, but it's more like it's not into the 19th century
0: yet. Wow. Wow. So you've got to
5: initial everything, and a certain number of people have to initial it. And some things can be in ink, and if they're in ink, then some other things have to be in ink. Uh, The rules are: we still don't have uh, a rule that allows certified copies of a will to be valid. If you don't have an original, you got no will.
0: So, uh, what advice would you have for the average Joe? I mean, what should they do?
5: Honestly, it's going to sound trite, but uh, have a lawyer do your will, Uh, and don't expect uh, and don't expect to pay a hundred or two hundred dollars now. You know, ten years ago, twenty years ago, you'd go to a lawyer, you'd get a two page will, and that was great for the lawyer with the estates practice because they'd run off to court and get thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, in dealing with your estate after death. But a normal lawyer now, you know, you get a will, it's under $1,000 or so, and it's about 11 pages long. It's fairly complicated. But you know what? The biggest thing you get from a lawyer, aside from having the will done right, is what happens if the will's not done right. Yeah. That lawyer has insurance.
0: mm. So if you have done a will by a lawyer and it's filed away somewhere for safekeeping, what about all these other stuffs that you, uh, stuff that you may scribble on a piece of paper? What if uh, Aretha Franklin had a will that maybe was done 20, 30 years ago, and then these little updates left on notes?
5: You know, you can update a will. They're called codicils, and you can combine things if you can. When I draft... You know, when we draft wills here at my firm, we we include a clause that says that certain personal items are to be distributed according to a list, which uh, I'll make and leave by hand or with my will with my lawyers. You know, so we don't end up drafting wills saying that you know, uh, Grandma's second best uh, cutler silver goes to uh, cousin Lucy or something right. like that because <laughs> you're probably you're probably going to lose those things or sell them or have them stolen or give them away while you're alive. So we try not to compete with those kinds of little gifts. And we try and leave it so that, you know, those sort of handwritten gifts are good, uh, are perfectly valid. And at the same time, the bulk of your state uh, executor trusts, uh, uh, custody applications for kids, those big, big things mm. are dealt with in the will.
0: Uh, does size of a state have any bearing on whether you should have one or not? Surprised that people like an Aretha Franklin are doing it this way. And uh, you know, I remember uh, when Prince passed away, he didn't have a will, and the size of that estate. Are you, does that surprise you?
5: That's mind-boggling, especially because those people are in the states. Uh, there are jurisdictions in the world where there's a fifty percent death tax, uh, even so, uh, or inheritance tax, or intergenerational or wealth tax, whatever you want to call it. In some U.S. states, it's over 20%, especially if you hit the federal threshold. The U.K., it's very substantial. In Canada, it's much, much less. It's uh, one and a quarter percent is the basic uh, tariff, you know. So the answer is in the U.S., yeah, there is a huge estate planning industry for tax purposes. In Canada, much less so. If you're only paying 1.25% of X, X has to be a pretty big number before it justifies, you know, the kind of uh, work involved in creating a, a family trust structure, or family holding company, things like that.
0: So why don't people leave wills? I mean, I guess most would could say, well, you know, I'm not really thinking about dying and I don't really want to think about dying. Um, but then again, specifically those with massive amounts of, uh, mm-hmm. of money in estates like this, you would think it would just be part of a business plan.
5: You know what? I think you're right. You hit the nail on the head that people don't want to think about dying and there are people that you would not, Necessarily expect it. I guarantee you, those people's lawyers, those people, their accountants, are are telling them as part of their succession planning for their business, as part of their retirement planning. They're being referred to lawyers. At that point, it's a choice not to do it because you just don't want to deal with it. You don't have a conversation with your kids. Maybe you don't want to have a conversation. Now. You know, with your spouse, when you when they find find out you want to name your brother as the executor instead of them, you know, there's lots of reasons and they all seem silly. It's, it's generally no one would think on purpose, Oh, I'm never going to have a will. It's just something they put off because it's unpleasant. And then everyone pays the price afterwards.
0: Should everyone have one? I mean, if, uh, you know, I, say you're single, you don't have any dependents, you don't, you know, you're an average person, average means. Do I need a will or, you know, should I just let the government handle it all?
5: You know what? There's a conception that the government handles it all. There's even a a bigger misconception that the government gets everything if you don't make a will. You know what? That's not the case. If you don't have significant assets, you don't have people that you need to make sure are looked after. Uh, You don't have children. um, And uh, you have insurance, for example, or beneficiary designations, or all you have is RSPs, or real estate that you own jointly with your kids for the next generation transfer, there are ways of making sure that not having a will is just fine for some people. But that still involves the same planning, the Mm. same thought process. If you've got anything to deal with at all, it will go more smoothly with the will.
0: Loglin J. Campbell has been with us. Campbell Bader, LLP. Three handwritten wills been found in the home of Aretha Franklin. Thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you.